Unfortunately, a lot of the work that had been written about grading was really addressing it as a pedagogical need. And I started to see that traditional grading was actually perpetuating a lot of inequities in schools. Welcome to TG2Cast. I'm Arthur Caravalli, co-founder of Teachers Going Gradeless. In this episode, I interview Joe Feldman author of Grading for Equity. Joe has worked in education as a teacher, principal, district administrator, and is now founder of Crescendo Education Group, which since 2013 has supported schools in adopting assessment, grading, and reporting practices that improve equity outcomes in schools. Welcome, Joe. How have you been uh, holding up amid this COVID-19 pandemic? Well, thanks, Arthur. I mean, as uh, I'm sure everyone um, is experiencing, uh, stress and anxiety to hold and new roles to play. And, you know, I'm both trying to work and support schools and be a homeschool facilitator or remote facilitator and trying not to go stir crazy and drive <laughs> everyone in my family crazy. So <laughs> probably, the, probably what everyone is experiencing. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, actually. So as you've, as you've come home and, and, you know, had some responsibility for the education of your own children. What has been most eye-opening for you and your own personal experience there? You know, it's hard for me to see it only as a parent, but, you know, because I've been um, a teacher and principal and school administrator and been in education in schools for so long, I see sort of what's, how teachers are trying to make this big pivot yes. and how they are, um, trying to sort of hold the stress in their own lives and try and negotiate, like, how do I do online learning? And mm -hmm. what do I ask of parents? And what do parents, what should I expect parents to be able to do? And are those expectations right or a little off? And um, how do I continue relationships with kids when we're so far away from each other? I mean, just all kinds of new questions and challenges as if there weren't already enough. Yeah, really. I, have you seen anything that you found, you know, somewhat promising? I guess just from any of those perspectives, from your vantage point, you know, as you've been seeing us begin this process of pivoting, um, any any feelings of optimism here? Any feelings that you've seen? You've seen any good things? Any things that you you feel, um, you know, we're going to have to go back to the drawing board with? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that we. Um, it continues to remind us how dedicated um, our teachers and school administrators and district administrators are, that they are trying to continue to support as many students as possible with as many sort of challenging educational experiences as possible and to provide those supports in such terrible, terribly challenging times. Um, so it certainly reaffirms that. I don't know that we are sort of learning a lot in the moment, but I think when this is over, I think we'll be able to take away some pretty big ideas around what might um, remote learning or using technology uh, more expansively um, do to engage uh, more students. And mm -hmm. I think it also, with the work that I do, I think it will help teachers think about how could we grade differently and mm. um, not be so concerned with some of the traditional ways of grading? Um, because in this environment, we're forced to rethink a lot of that. So that uh, that's a good segue into your book, obviously, Grading and Equity. Um, you know, having been interested in the grading field for a long time myself, I know it hits on a lot of the usual suspects in terms of, you know, your kind of broken, unhealthy grading practices. But you approach the question 
differently than other books devoted to the question of grades. I just would be interested in hearing a little bit of your history of how you began to focus and maybe even just notice this question of equity surrounding grades. And, and what was it that you saw that was missing in the discourse? Obviously, we have a lot of, a lot of books on grades, uh, but the discourse around assessment, grading, and reporting practices that had you write this book. So I, as I said, I've been uh, in education a long time uh, in lots of different roles and in lots of different contexts. And um, one of the conversations and issues that was always so difficult for me as a teacher and as an administrator was grading. Um, it's not something that any teacher is trained for formally. There's nothing in graduate schools or rarely in onboarding and professional development. And so mm -hmm. we struggle through those conversations um, right. to make sense of them. And there's, as I continued to do research on this, I found that a lot of the practices we use are um, traditional ones that date back from the Industrial Revolution. And unfortunately, a lot of the work that had been written about grading was really addressing it as a um, pedagogical need. And I started to see in some data I looked at that the traditional grading was actually um, perpetuating a lot of inequities in schools. And so I found right. that bringing that lens created a strong moral imperative for us to really examine the way we've been grading and find more equitable ways to do that. As, uh, as you write about this, and in one of the parts of your books, you talk about in implicit bias as, as being one of the main drivers of some of these inequities, um, and, and that it does insinu obviously insinuates itself into a lot of different aspects of our school, not just grading, but, but including grades. And I would ask you, like, what are, what are some of the common practices that you think are particularly ripe for this kind of abuse that really allow those implicit biases to come out and to create those sort of inequitable outcomes? Yeah, the, um, it really goes back to one of the big ideas during the Industrial Revolution when our grading practices were developed, which is... Um, the idea of behaviorism, that this is mm -hmm. uh, Watson and Skinner, that you can best change students' behaviors by extrinsic motivation. Um, right. And this was just how we thought about what human beings were like. So with the way that we thought about grading, it was, well, we're not just going to include academic performance in grades, but we're going to include behavior. Because if we want to change students' behavior, the way we most effectively do that is through extrinsic motivation. Um, of course, right. we've learned that Extrinsic motivation is a terrible way to motivate people to change their behavior. And intrinsic is far superior. And in fact, extrinsic motivation lowers performance, um, particularly around critical and creative thinking. But these right. have been embedded into our grading practices. And so many times what teachers do is they want to encourage certain kinds of behaviors and discourage others, um, whether they be particularly around classroom management or really related to learning. Like I want my students to take notes. Um, or right. I want them to be paying attention. And when we start assigning points and including a student's behaviors in the grade, we are necessarily bringing our own biases to that. Um, and they can be biases mm. that are simply, you know, when I learn, I take notes. And therefore, I think all people learn when they take notes, which is not true. It doesn't account for diverse learners. And because of the 
implicit racial uh, and gender biases that we have, as, been, as well as others, we may actually be misperceiving what students are doing and judging behaviors that have nothing to do with whether or not students are learning, but we're rewarding or penalizing them based on those. So part of this work to make grading more equitable is to remove the evaluation of a student's behavior in their grade. So I, I think that there are probably uh, several other ways that um, inequities find them that find their way into grades. What are some of those other practices that really uh, put certain students at an advantage and other students and, and obviously, you know, more traditionally marginalized, vulnerable groups at a disadvantage um, and, and really have nothing to do with the learning that uh, they're trying to demonstrate? A great example is the mathematical calculations that we use to render grades. So, uh, and we don't normally think about even questioning the mathematics because uh, for many of us, we farm it out to our software, grading software, and using the mathematics of the software uh, may seem to us as if it cleanses it of criticism or of bias, right? It's what the numbers right. say. It's not me. So if a parent complains, I can just say, well, that's what the numbers say and, and uh, avoid some of the, the, the difficult conversations. Um, but um, the way that grade books traditionally calculate and that we calculate actually reward students with resources and punish those without. So I'll give you an example. Um, yeah. We traditionally average a student's performance over time. Um, so, you know, if I have to learn how to write a persuasive essay and I get five chances to do it, um, I get five different grades and those grades are averaged. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that if I come into the class and I have, you know, had a strong background uh, and maybe I took a summer course in writing or I had a really strong uh, previous year English teacher, um, I'm going to be writing pretty consistently high quality essays from the very beginning and my average will then be higher. But if I'm a student that didn't have a strong education background or I didn't wasn't able to enroll in a summer enrichment program or I went to a school that maybe had rotating subs for that year um, or didn't have as much support at home, um, I'm not going to perform as well at the beginning. And even if I ultimately learn how to write an essay of high quality and perform that at high quality at the end of the unit, my performance over that time will be averaged. Uh, and that will essentially hide all the growth that I've shown, or half of it. Um, and it will disproportionately make it harder for students with weaker education backgrounds to be successful. So part of this work is getting teachers to think, oh, how could I calculate grades rather than averaging, which is what my software has always done and what I reflexively do. But it actually doesn't have to be that way. So that's, that's an example of where ostensibly an objective aspect of grading, the mathematics actually disproportionately um, hurts historically underserved groups. So, yeah, and, and I think you make a great point where you say that, you know, one of our impulses there has been to 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 avoid some of these subjective, um, you know, kind of uh, factors that might make their way into the calculation. How, how can we do that cal calculation more equitably? What would be an example of something that you could replace the average with uh, that would give us a more equitable outcome? Well, the uh, sort of a simple one is to say, I'm going to look at how a student performed at the end of their learning and not mm. during. So if we're doing some work and they make some mistakes along the way, which 
parenthetically, I hope they make a lot of mistakes because we know that you learn from mistakes and we all talk about how great mistakes are and the growth mindset, then I'm not going to hold those mistakes against them when they, and if they ultimately learn. So I might look at a student's most recent performance and have that count for the grade. So in the example I gave you, maybe what's happening is that um, we are replacing earlier grades with later grades in the grade book. So that's, or we might actually um, sort of have a weighted averaging, which some teachers like to do, where they'll say the first assignment is worth only X percent, um, and the the later assignment in that work is worth a lot more. I prefer personally think it's more equitable to replace, um, but that's mm, another option. Yes. Um, there are some teachers though who raise very important questions, like, well, what if the student does well in the middle and then doesn't perform as well at the end, or what if they um, you know, do, uh, do, do they just have to do well once or should they have to do well right. for a while? And these are really great questions. And part of this work is not being prescriptive and saying you must do it this way. But if you can right. um, dislodge yourself from the mindset that I must average, it opens up all these really valuable and professional conversations that teachers can have that right now there's no vocabulary or, or opportunity for them to have. A few days ago, you participated in a panel on grading and crediting during this current crisis. Um, and, and I think the overall message was that we should be moving to credit incomplete or no record. We should focus first and foremost on a climate of care and connection. Again, coming from your equity lens, what are some of your biggest concerns as many schools try to pivot toward remote instruction? Well, I, I think there are two parts to this. One is um, we want our grades to be accurately reporting a student's level of performance. I mean, at, at its heart, I think we want our grades to do that. And there's mm-hmm. a real question of whether or not during a pandemic, students are able to describe and perform at the level that they're actually at um, and mm-hmm. whether we as teachers can accurately assess it. Um, whether because we're having to go through um, what is for many of us the unfamiliar medium of remote learning, um, for Mm -hmm. which many educators have not been trained. And it's not so simple as you can learn how to do it by, you know, figuring out how to do Google Sheets. Um, Remote learning is a very specialized subset of uh, pedagogy. And I think we have to recognize that we are not doing our best work and neither are our students. So mm-hmm. um, we certainly wouldn't think that a grade of a B in sophomore English in second semester has any relationship to what a B was last year in sophomore English second semester. Um, and so I think there's a real question around getting even accurate grades. And the stress students are experiencing is sure, certainly um, impeding their ability to show their performance. And this really is part of where equity comes in, which is that students are not experiencing the, the effects of the pandemic equally. And mm. many students, as we know, don't have, this, don't have optimal access to technology or bandwidth, or there's, you know, uh, there's three siblings and they all have to use the computers too, and we don't have enough right. um, speed to handle it. Um, to say nothing of the disproportionate stress that students who have uh, 
in families who uh, their parents have incomes that are highly dependent on the service industry um, or other right. industries that are just um, demolished during this time. And um, we're not able to really give all students the kind of supports that we normally give. You know, schools, part of their reason for being is to try and not perpetuate the disparities that existed before, but to dampen the impact of the, the disproportionate harm that has been done to certain groups, black and brown kids and poor kids. And so schools have wraparound supports and they have counseling and they have tutorials and all kinds of ways to support them um, that right. they aren't able to do now. Having had to sacrifice all those things and not have those available, we really can't believe that our students are, are getting equitable support and that it's worthwhile to grade them during this time. Maybe on a little bit more of an optimistic note, you know, a lot of people are talking about the opportunities. And, and of course, this is a terrible crisis. Um, and, and many people are, very, are suffering greatly because of this. But there are people who are trying to say, how can we make the most of this moment? And certainly, um, you know, in the, in the panel discussion that you gave, there was a, a fair amount of discussion about that possibly moving teachers and students from being, and I, I think you put it in your book and your writing as vendors, you know, points toward more of a focus on learning. And, and as I was listening to some of the, some of the panel members um, answering that question of what could we do instead of, you know, this traditional yeah. approach that we've had with grades um, Randall Booker, superintendent of Piedmont Unified School District, mentioned that seniors might lean more heavily on a letter of recommendation. You know, so there's a narrative there. There's a description there. Mm -hmm. uh, Stacey Caldwell, the Mastery Transcript Association, of course, they are they are looking at ways of empowering kids to, quote unquote, tell their story. Um, you know, that it's not just this one directional kind of like, this is what you got. And and just having those, you know, one letter or number signifiers uh, indicating what we saw. You know, as I listened to this, I, I was I was kind of torn because I was wondering on some how might some of these developments actually exacerbate potentially some inequities. In other words, voices without the same power or platform or position may not get a chance to tell their story, mm -hmm. you know, beyond the usual transcript. You know, I also see in a certain way, potentially testing organizations swooping into that vacuum. And, and both you and I, I believe, are on this open letter that we're writing, um, you know, yes. the college board about their decision to move ahead. I can see a scenario where absent the usual transcript is really what we have in this particular term. Colleges may look even more to those external tests, which have been shown to be terribly inequitable, to take over certifying learning and giving us that easily, that efficient way of sorting students. And so that's not terribly optimistic what I just said there, yeah. but how can we make the most of this moment? How can we, you know, take what we're learning from this really terrible situation and and use it as an opportunity to make schools a more equitable place? Yeah, that's that's one of the big million dollar questions. I mean, I think, I mean, I'll talk more narrowly about what I think it is helping us experience and think about in terms of grading and, and giving feedback to students. I think mm -hmm. that um, because 
teachers aren't with their students in classrooms, when they are evaluating the students, it is forcing teachers to think only about the students' um, academic performance and not include all the other stuff like, were you working with a group well? And were you quiet? And did you raise your hand? I think a lot of that is out of necessity getting pushed out of the considerations of what um, it means for me to give feedback to students and to give um, and to give grades. And I think mm-hmm. having teachers remember what that was like and how it was actually really more, more um, teachers were able to be more focused and not have to be bean counters all the time and to just give little, you know, five points here, five points here and motivate students that way. It was all about the, the academic work of students and how do I identify what students can do and how do I give them feedback on it? And that's why we as educators went into this. We did not go into teaching mm-hmm. so that we could spend time tallying up and then spending a half hour, 45 minutes every day in the grade book, putting in who brought their notebook and who didn't. Um, right. We're much more highly qualified than to be doing work like that. And I think having teachers connect with that after this is all over might help, um, as, I, as I've said, dislodge them from this very right. traditional way of thinking about what is their relationship with students and, and how do you motivate and, and um, encourage kids to think more deeply about their own learning um, in a new kind of feedback and reporting system. Right. Well, Joe, thank you very much. I really appreciate your joining me today. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your book. It's excellent. Uh, I wish you, your family, and the schools that you work with the very best uh, the rest of this year. Um, and hopefully uh, we can get the College Board to back down a little bit with this uh, this plan to move forward. Yeah, well, thank you, Arthur, for continuing this conversation and, and your work. Um, I think um, having it be in the in the atmosphere is particularly relevant at this time. And I think we'll, we'll only continue to be a good resource for lots of folks. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. My guest today has been Joe Feldman, author of Grading for Equity, What It Is, Why It Matters, and How It Can Transform Schools and Classrooms, available through Corwin Publishing. That concludes today's episode of TG2Cast. If you'd like more information, check out our website at teachersgoinggradeless.com, our Facebook group, Teachers Going Gradeless, or you can follow us on Twitter at TG2Chat. Please subscribe to the podcast to catch future installments of TG2Cast. Thanks for listening.